From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. One of the more impressive streaks in college athletics is owned by the Gators, as the program has won a national championship in every full season since 2008, a run that added another chapter on Wednesday, with men's golf claiming their fifth national championship in team history. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly for a roundtable chat discussing a triumphant week for men's golf, baseball's bracket for this weekend's NCAA Regional, and unlikely heroes in the PAT. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It is time to crank up the roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly. And guys, where else can we start but with a week that will be remembered forever for the men's golf program uh, which started with an individual national championship for Fred Biondi and then a magical run to the team title, including some wild comebacks at multiple turns. Chris, can you take us through this this incredible week for J.C. Deacon's team and, and the significance of their accomplishments? Well, you can just start by saying, could the week have possibly gone any better than it had? Yeah, let's, let's, let's start with Fred Biondi because ultimately we're going to finish with Fred Biondi, even though Fred Biondi isn't going to want to want us to finish with them. And I'll get to that in a second, but here's a guy, a, a fifth year senior from, from Brazil who came to Florida in 2019 with, you know, so much, so much fanfare. One of the, one of the best amateur, one of the best prospects in the world and came to Florida and just, you know, was okay. Um, then to, to kind of rededicate himself last year and become the player that he was or that he, that he, that he became the season and to win the uh, the medalist championship in the individual. All along the way, though, playing so well to help the Gators advance through that, you know, those first four, four rounds of very important stroke play that get you to match play. In doing so, he became the first uh, individual player to win the NCAA title for the Gators since Nick Gillum in 2001. Nick Gillum also was the best player on the last uh, Florida National Championship team. And three days later, these uh, Nick Gillum and, and Fred Biondi have something in common. Fred Biondi closes out the match on the 18th hole, made a little bit of a comeback. He was behind on the back nine in his match with his Georgia Tech uh, uh, Hiroshi Tai. Um, and, you know, just hits a great drive, uh, hits the green, um, and, you know, lags up a putt within two feet to the point that uh, Ty concedes to these, the, his individual match and the overall match to the Gators who commence a euphoric celebration. It's great. I mean, it's, it's amazing what happened. Um, you mentioned the Florida state game or match Adam. Uh, they, they, they were down four. They were down in four matches at one time on the front line in the quarterfinals against uh, the university of Virginia. Um, 
against FSU, the, the Seminoles scored the first two points of the match. So it's a two nothing hole in zero margin for error the rest of the way. And they flipped that switch. Uh, Ricky Castillo, the, the, just a fabulous player who's kind of tracked the same kind of career that Fred Biondi has. A guy who was pretty good, didn't do a lot of great things, really, really high profile uh, prospect when he got here. But again, kind of put the goals of the team ahead of, of ahead of his individual, um, you know, goals, if you were. Had his comeback and uh, ended up beating Florida State three to two. Fantastic. They're in the finals. Uh, first time in, for a long time. Never been in match play finals since the NSA went to match play in 2009. Uh, played Georgia Tech, uh, uh, a fifth-seeded team, but knocked off the number one seed North Carolina the day before. Yushin Lin uh, gets the Gators their first point, but with six holes to go, uh, Georgia Tech's up three matches, uh, and, the, and the other one is tied, so Florida has some work to do. And little by little, um, they kind of just kind of got themselves back and showed that toughness that J.C. Deacon ultimately uh, talked about, saying that these guys were tough sons of guns. And, you know, I got to give credit to Matthew Kress. Uh, he's a walk-on from California. He didn't win his match, but he's down two with two to go. Um, you know, basically it's over. But he fought back and won those two holes at when it was one to nothing. If he loses after, say, the 17th hole, now it's one to one and the player's out on the course. His teammates know that. And that puts pressure on them. But instead, he extended into two extra holes. And that gave time for John Dubo to come back. That gave time for Castillo to come back. That gave, that gave time for Fred Biondi to take control of his match. Ultimately, Dubo's won on number 18. Then uh, uh, Fred Biondi won on number 18. So Fred Biondi clinches the match. He clinches the championship three days after he wins the individual championship. And afterwards, he's saying, you know what? His quote was, you know, winning as a team means so much more. It's awesome that we did this together and not just me closing out. Every single person back home that was in the gym, that's back home cheering for us, the coaches on this staff, the support staff, everyone involved, it's their championship too. And the way this whole thing played out on the Golf Channel and on you saw on social media people following this, this, this was a great championship for Gator Nation. And uh, let's go. It's 46 all-time NCAA titles, and Florida and Stanford are the only teams um, – since 2008 to win a national championship every year that a full athletic calendar has been contested. So the Gators will not be uh, shut out this year of national championships. And JC Deacon wins his first in his ninth season. And he was very, very emotional like his team was. So good for him. It's really, really, really good to see him uh, finally get this, finally get this one. Turning our attention to baseball, which would be the lead in any other week without a national title to discuss, uh, but they're hoping this weekend will be the start of a special run themselves, what with the number two national seed locked up after a really solid run in Hoover uh, with enough dramatics to fill an entire season. Yeah, Adam, they, uh, they did have a good run up in Hoover, won the first two games, and uh, then they had the tough task of facing Vanderbilt for, what, the fifth time in two weeks, and and unfortunately, you know, Jack Caglione, who was so good at the end of the regular season, his final two, two starts, uh, he he didn't make it out of the second inning. Just a rough outing for him. Had a key throwing error. And, uh, you know, Vanderbilt not only wins, they go in to win the tournament, just the credit to Tim Corbin. I mean, that Florida and Vanderbilt have been the class of the SEC East now for a better part of a decade. But I think what the Gators take out of that more than anything is, you know, they got to go through their regular rotation up there uh, 
with uh, Waldrop, Sprout, and Caglione all getting a start. Uh, BT Rybell had an amazing series, uh, you know, drove in 10 runs. And, and the first two games up there, I mean, the way the Gators won those games, it was uh, dramatic, and uh, Rypel was in the middle of both both games. And it just showed to me that, you know, this team has has the ability to uh, to keep us uh, entertained through uh, the road to Omaha, and that's where we are now because they ended up with the number two national seed. Uh, they'll host the uh, Gainesville Regional starting this coming weekend. They win that. They'll host the Super Regional. And, uh, guys, you know, we've talked about this team a lot in recent weeks. I mean, nothing that happened in Hoover has changed my mind. I think this team is uh, – I'll be surprised if it doesn't end up in Omaha. But one thing that I knew going up to Hoover that was going to be important was, you know, just getting the consistent uh, starts out of the rotation. And, uh, uh, you know, Caglio's performance – uh, in game uh, three up there against Vanderbilt certainly wasn't his best. And uh, he's been inconsistent, so we'll just have to see how he does, uh, you know, in the in the uh, regional and super regional if they make it that far. But that was about the only thing that, you know, I took away as a negative from it. Otherwise, I thought they went up there, played well, had some uh, memorable moments, and now they'll get ready for uh, for what they hope is the uh, a trip to Omaha uh, in about, a, what, for two weeks? Yeah, Scott, I'm with you. I think the only negative is the Caglione thing. And frankly, I've been thinking more and more about that game this past Saturday. And if Josh Rivera doesn't make an error there, it's short. And then Caglione settles down to make that throw to third. I think his start is completely different. I think that he gets out of that first inning and then settles in. Four unearned runs in that first inning. And I think you caught Vanderbilt just like you said not willing to lose to Florida for a fifth straight time this year, number one. But Vanderbilt scored five runs in the first inning of their elimination game on Friday. They had four runs in the first against Florida on Saturday, and then they go on to beat you know, their opponent in the championship game on Sunday. They, just, they, they, they got a nice little run there at the end of the weekend and end up with the tournament championship. Other than that, everything else is, is just fine. I, and the BT Riopel story is so good, isn't it? I mean – Here's a guy playing in his last SEC tournament. He sets a school record with 10 RBI over the weekend. He homers three times, including the game winner in the 11th, which was absolutely tattooed. And then the solo home run in the Grand Slam. I I thought the bullpen was good. Even in the loss on Saturday, the top four guys in the lineup all had multi-hit games. Uh, They put six runs on the board. I'm I'm just going to say this, and I don't want anybody to get up in arms here when I say this, but I haven't seen Wake Forest. They're the number one overall seed. But I've seen a lot of other teams this year, and I've yet to see one that's better than Florida going into this NCAA tournament. I think they're that good. I think their mentality is right. I think that their camaraderie is perfect, and they've got talent. I mean, they're loaded. Um, Yes, Michael Robertson's struggling with the bat, but don't ignore how valuable he is in center field right now for the Gators. they got to figure out, I guess, what they're going to do at third base. But other than that, this team is poised and ready. I will say this about the regional coming up this weekend. Being the number two overall seed, I'm a little disappointed in the NCAA and the field they've sent to Florida for the regional. Florida AM, no problem. You know, shouldn't be. But man, UConn and Texas Tech are not to be trifled with. These are two very good baseball teams coming in. UConn went 43 and 15 overall, 15 and 5 in their conference. They're postseason tested. This is their fifth straight appearance. They steal a lot of bases, they hit for average, and they've got a good bullpen. And then Texas Tech, 
has a bona fide ace in Mason Molina. He's 5-2 and two with 98 strikeouts on the year. And just like the Gators, they've got a bomber, too, in the name of Gavin Cash, who's got 24 home runs and is hitting better than 333 on the year. So um, it won't be the easy weekend that maybe the number two seed should have earned in this situation, but I still like the Gators being at home at Condren Ballpark where they've been dominant all year long. Sean, you touched on this, I think, just now, but this is a tournament where weird things happen, right? A lot of upsets happen. Coastal Carolina won a national title a few years ago. So while you've established you think Florida's the best team you've seen this year, if you're Kevin O'Sullivan, what are you most concerned about going into this regional? Is it something internal or is it just some of the opponents you mentioned who are coming your way? Well, I, if I'm O'Sullivan, I, I, I don't think I'm worried about anything that I can't control. If I'm being an objective observer here of this, you don't want weather to come in here and mess the regional up or mess pitching up like it did last year in Gainesville, frankly. Uh, and then again, this is a sport where one team can get hot at the right time. Look at Tulane University, by the way, who had 19 or 20 wins on the season. They're in because they got hot at the right time, won their conference tournament. And interestingly enough, they'll play one of their arch rivals this weekend in LSU, the first game of that regional in Baton Rouge. The other thing is, you know, who are you paired up with in the regional? And as it stands right now, this regional in Gainesville is paired up with Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, and if it's chalk over there, that means you're going to see South Carolina again. And that's not a, a team that, you know, <laughs> gives you a layup. Although you do get them at home and South Carolina's stumbled down the stretch, a lot of it having to do with injuries. But I, I think the one thing has we've seen here is that the Gators starting rotation for the most part has a consistently been available all season long and has won a lot more than they've lost. And the fact that you've earned yourself the home field in each of these next two rounds is a massive plus for Florida as well. The big, the bullpen was the the key storyline for the first half of the season in terms of, will they be able to get it or not going right? And they really have, I think, uh, you know, Ryan Slater, you know, Brandon Neely, uh, those guys have really become dependable. I think the left-hander, Philip Abner and Kate Fisher, I think they've really filled their roles nicely. Uh, and, you know, Sean, I think, touched on one thing earlier that I've said this all along and I still believe, I think Josh Rivera is really the glue guy. And, you know, like Sean said, that he made an uncharacteristic error in that game against Vanderbilt, a ball that was kind of, hit on a line, but it was a little dancy and it bounced off his glove for an era. And it kind of just opened the floodgates. But, you know, Rivera's, I think, got to play well, uh, you know, at shortstop and in the middle of that lineup if he if he can hit consistently. And the other guys just do what they're doing, man. I just see this team having all the pieces. It really does. And we all know this is a game of getting hot at the right time. And uh, sometimes it's – um it's you know a team comes out of nowhere and surprises us all, but I, I think I'll be surprised if if the Gators don't play well enough to get to Omaha. And then once you're out there, uh, it's just a matter of you know playing well, getting the bounce here and there, getting good pitching. Uh, but it, it's going to be an interesting next two weeks. I think a fun next two weeks for Gator fans. I want to wrap up now with our PAT. It's inspired by the Miami Heat's run to the NBA Finals, which. Mostly prognosticators thought was dead in the water after blowing the 3-0 lead, but they did prevail in Game 7, and they did it on the strength of someone who I would call 
an unlikely hero. Now, and in admission, I am not a huge NBA guy, but I did not know who Caleb Martin was before I watched Game 7. Uh, now a lot of people know who he is because he's basically the reason that they overcame that Boston comeback and now are playing for a championship. So what I was curious for you guys is unlikely heroes that either you've seen or even better if you've covered someone who came out of nowhere to help deliver a major a major championship, a major victory to a team. I'll throw this out real quick. Uh, when the Gators defeated Nevada in the NCAA tournament, uh, it was Andrew Nemhard and Keontae Johnson and Noah Locke's freshman year. Caleb Martin was the best player on Nevada. Hmm. And he, was, he, he and his twin brother uh, uh, transferred from North Carolina State. So I, I remember seeing uh, Caleb, Caleb Martin playing in that particular game. I believe it was in Des Moines, Iowa. If I'm not, if it wasn't there, it was in Texas or one only. I, I get all those NCAA venues uh, and NCAA venues mixed up. But um, incredible stat uh, about just not just Caleb Martin, but that whole Miami Heat team. I think um, uh, Stan Van Gundy came up with it late, or Reggie Miller did. Whatever, fifty six points a game from undrafted players in the postseason. Wow. So we could we 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 could have this conversation about uh, 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 someone else beyond Caleb Martin, by the way. But in terms of of ones that I would say, I I'll go back and to my NFL days, and you know when you think about the New England Patriots and winning all their championships, of course you think about Tom Brady. But where would they be without Adam Vinatieri? I had never heard of Adam Vinatieri. Um, in 2001, I don't think, but of course he kicked this, the, the, the tuck rule field goal in the snow. Uh, a couple weeks later, uh, at the Super Bowl in New Orleans, he kicked the, the world championship Super Bowl winning, uh, field goal to beat the Rams. Um, two years later, he kicked the field goal on the last play of the game to, to beat the Carolina Panthers in the Super Bowl. And a couple of year later, years later, I think, uh, he kicked field goals for the Indianapolis Colts when, when, um, when Peyton Manning was uh, was was winning the Super Bowl, so I know kickers are kind of you know they have an asterisk or whatever, but he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He retired in 2019, and I, I think he could probably make a case that Adam Vinatieri might be the greatest kicker of all time. Um, but that's just somebody you you don't really besides Tom Brady, who's the one guy throughout the Patriots domination that that you, that you know that you kind of think about. And for some reason, I'm tie I, I tie Adam Vinatieri. Uh, to that, I know he wasn't there for for the ones later on in Brady's career, but he did come out of nowhere, and I don't think the Patriots win those championships without him. Isn't it funny that whenever we talk about these types of things, it's sometimes easy to forget that anybody on an NBA roster or NFL roster or even major Division One college athletics, they're already a, a very good athlete and capable of doing special things. But yet, yes, sometimes you. You get the unexpected. Is it David Freeze hitting a home run to walk off a Game 6 World Series win to send the Cardinals on their way to seven and then an eventual world championship? Is it a Kirk Gibson who, again, is not an unlikely hero, but unlikely that he could even perform with his injuries, and he comes into the game as a pinch hitter and hits one of the most memorable home runs in not just Dodger but Major League Baseball history? You know, I don't. I can't believe what I just saw a call from Jack Buck in that situation. I mean, we have them, I guess. Grant Williams last year in the NBA playoffs seemingly comes out of nowhere to hit some big threes in game seven to eliminate the Milwaukee Bucks. Maybe maybe we didn't expect that from a team that featured Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. But uh, there are some unlikely ones out there. I, 
I wish I had like the ultimate who's this guy for you off the top of my head right now, but I don't. Uh, and just like Chris mentioned with Caleb Martin, um, it's easy to go back and say this person's been in this situation before or there's a reason why he became an unlikely hero because, frankly, he was already really good. Yeah, they're fun. These guys who come out of nowhere like Caleb Martin, although I guess he's not really out of nowhere, but I'm a little bit like Adam. I was not in tune uh, with who he was as much as Chris was. You know, as long as I live, guys, my favorite all-time unlikely hero will be Francisco Cabrera, you know, 1992 Game 7 against the Pirates. I knew this was going to – I was like, he's going to go Sid Bream. I mean, Sid Bream yeah. adjacent. I mean, it's a, you know, that was at the height of my sports fandom as a young American male living in the <laughs> South. The Braves were still the only team, and they had been so bad for so long. And, you know, he slaps that single to left field, and Barry Bonds makes a nice throw, but Sid Bream beats it. So, And whatever happened to Francisco Cabrera, I mean, he – he played another year or two, but he quickly disappeared again from the spotlight as the Braves continued that great run. Uh, and, you know, but he's he's always got his lore. Probably my favorite Gator, Gator unlikely hero. I still remember Michael McNeely taking that fake field goal yeah. in 2014 to beat Georgia, ran for a touchdown. And the next day he shows up at work at Publix working the uh, as a bag boy. I mean, that's to me, that's going to be hard to top at Florida, you know, for me. Um but I think just in terms of, I mean, you know, baseball lends itself to so many, you know. Uh, he, You know, uh, it was Sean mentioned Kirk Gibson, that 88 moment. But Mickey Hatcher had a great series, an unlikely hero that series. So NBA, oh, I think the one that stands out to me, and I mean, this wasn't really, it was more of a phenomenon than anything else. I still remember, you know, Jeremy Lin a few years ago. He mm-hmm. just blew up so big, and then he kind of, you know, went back into obscurity. But, you know, for for like two or three months there, it seemed like Jeremy Lin was as big as Michael Jordan. So it's fun when one of those guys comes along and then we can talk about him like 10 years later. Hey, whatever happened to that guy? Mm-hmm. I, I think Scott wins. Scott, I'm declaring you the winner of this PAT. We don't always have oh. a winner, but but you really brought it today. Oh, uh, right. well, I appreciate it. What will I win? What do I win? Uh, the chance to come back on here next week. And <laughs> oh, all right, well, it's 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 worth it. Until then, be sure to check these guys out on Twitter and on FloridaGators.com, where all of their written content will be posted. And uh, guys, we will talk to you next week. All right, Adam. Few sports are driven by numbers as much as baseball, and few players have seen their numbers change as much from year to year as Josh Rivera. Florida's junior shortstop always had potential, but it didn't get unlocked until this season, with his batting average jumping more than 100 points and his output doubling in almost every major category. Undrafted and dejected after last season, his prospects have taken a major turn, and we learned why when we spoke to him earlier this week. I have a pretty big family to start that, along with uh, my mother has five sisters, Wow. Um, so I have, yeah, I have a lot of cousins. She grew up in the Bronx, New York. Uh, same with my dad. They both grew up in New York. Um, and they met each other when they were around 13. And, you know, they basically uh, been in love ever since. Wow. Um, before they had my older sister, they moved down to Florida to finish uh, high school. Uh, mostly my mother. My dad, unfortunately, didn't, you know, finish high school. But, um, 
Yeah, uh, she moved down to Orlando, and my dad followed her right behind that, and they ended up getting married. Uh, and then after they got married here in Florida, they settled down in a place called Sebring, uh, which is in Highlands County, about you know twenty minutes away from, or not twenty, but forty-five minutes away from Lakeland. Um, but yeah, they settled down there in that small town and had my sister in 1997 and then they had me in 2000 and i lived in sebring uh for my childhood and then i moved over to avon park which is only like 10 minutes and that's where i spent a majority of my uh childhood and um you know teenage years down in avon park until um i transferred to img academy my senior year of high school so you are the product of two new yorkers but you never actually lived in new york i'm curious does it still? Do you still? Do you have a little bit of that? Uh, of that New York edge that comes with it, or no? Because you never, never got to be there yourself. Um, I would say probably not because I never got to be there. But, um, you know, considering my aunts and you know even my dad's side of the family, they're all from, you know, up north in that New York area. Um, I definitely grew up, uh, you know, with that edge. I think because that's how they kind of raised me, you know, mm-hmm. especially competitive nature. You know, they'd always try to beat me at something and there's always some trash talk in there. So, um, yeah, I definitely got that competitive edge from, you know, playing video games with my dad or my uncle or, you know, even my cousins. So we all just um, compete with each other on a daily basis in whatever we do. And I think I have a little bit of that edge, but it's kind of different, you know, being from mm-hmm. Florida while they're from New York. So I try my best to... <laughs> develop it a little bit on my own, especially in high school. So when did, when did baseball come in the picture for you? How did that get started? Um, I didn't start playing baseball until I was around the age of six. Um, and that's kind of late for, you know, most people that are in my position playing, you know, division one baseball. Um, but yeah, I was, I was heavily involved in like soccer and basketball back then. Um, and then one day I was on my way with my, grandmother i was in the car with her and my parents were thinking about signing me up for you know ymca baseball and i was like what is baseball i mean at the time it was t-ball and they kind of described the game of t-ball and my grandmother was you know kind of eager to put me in the game and i was like no i don't want to do it and i told my grandmother not to you know tell my parents not to sign me up but um she told them to sign me up regardless and you know i was kind of angry about it but at the same time you know, I was open to trying new things. And then, yeah, once I started playing T-ball, I just fell in love with the game. So I think a lot of people would say the most important position on the field, it's either shortstop or it's catcher. Were you always a shortstop? How did you end up in that role? Because in, in my recollection, um, especially when you're younger, that's usually where they put the best athlete on the field is at shortstop because how difficult it is, especially when you're playing at, at younger ages. So did you naturally gravitate to that spot or did you just end up there later? I naturally gravitated to it uh, when I was younger. You know, I played shortstop probably from seven or eight to eleven. But at the same time, most travel ball teams that I played for, we already had a set shortstop in the position. Um, so I mean, I got moved over to third base probably around the age of twelve, thirteen, and I played third base throughout high school uh, and in my summer team. My travel organization, the Florida Burn, we had a tremendous shortstop named Kevin Brule, who's um, a graduate now of, you know, Army West Point. So, you know, he's having a tremendous year over there. And, you know, even back then, he he was our shortstop. And, 
you know, I played third base right beside him. So, I mean, we both kind of just – we both kind of had that vocal that vocal point on the left side of the field. You know, he would be vocal to the other infielders and, you know, encourage the pitcher. And then I would also just um, kind of piggyback off of that and just, you know, try to be as vocal as possible from third base. And then, you know, once I got to um, IMG Academy my senior year, I still played third base because we had, you know, Reese Hines, who was an infielder at the time. Um, he was, you know, a tremendous athlete there. So moved back over to shortstop once I started my collegiate career. I came up here in the summer and it kind of just introduced the the fact that, you know, we didn't have a set shortstop here. And they gave me the opportunity to go for it. And they said, if you want to be our shortstop, you know, you got to put in the work. So I definitely just put my head down and put in the work in order to, you know, uh, get that spot and solidify it. You mentioned transferring over to IMG Academy your senior year. I, I'm always interested with IMG Academy. How is it? Is it just a normal high school that, that people think is different? In my mind, it's like, I don't know, it's like a Hogwarts or something, right? So what is, how is it different from a normal high school or, or is it not that different? It is pretty different. Uh, definitely. It's more around like a college. Uh, you know, we have, you have different class periods, uh, different times, uh, and certain sports have morning school and then other sports have afternoon school. So for me, um, baseball, we had morning school started around, I say 740. Wow. Uh, 740 was the first class and you know we'd only have three classes a day I mean you're in there for longer periods of time than you know regular school because you know a, a public school you'd have you know six or seven classes a day um start school at 740 uh, only take three classes and in between those three classes you had a uh like a little break period uh where you could go to the you know the cafeteria and or go back to your dorm and, you know, get what you need for practice or something like that. So um, you get out around 12, 12, 15, and then we would go to practice uh, right after around like one thirty. And then when we had practice and stuff like that, uh, all the morning school athletes would be participating in practices um, like football, for example, they had morning practice and like basketball, they would have morning practice. So when we got out of school, and we went to practice, they were already done with practice and they had to go to school. Hmm. So it was um, it was very different for me, um, especially because I, I went to a public school where, you know, you had six, seven classes a day and, you know, different classes every day, every other day. Um, I mean, we had different classes every other day, but it was just three classes. You, you know, in there for a longer amount of time, but you get out shorter than everybody. So, um you know, it was definitely different, but I uh, definitely liked it a lot more because it prepared me for college. What's unique about baseball when it comes to recruiting is that at the same time, you're you're being recruited to, to go to a school, but also you're probably going to get drafted and have to decide what you want to do after that. So what was that process like for you trying to kind of twin track all of that stuff at the same time? Because it seems to me like it would be pretty, pretty complicated. Oh, yeah, it was definitely complicated, you know. Everybody has that dream of getting drafted. Um, you know, definitely some guys uh, are fortunate enough to get drafted out of high school. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't where I wanted to be in my athletic career uh, in order for that to happen. You know, of course, I wanted to get drafted out of high school, but um, at least for my individual, uh, my individual self and, you know, from the from the perspective that I took, you know, I think it was a lot better for me to just 
go to college, you know, one, cause my family definitely wanted me to go to college. Um, you know, I'm a first generation collegiate student, uh, in my family. So, uh, we made it a point of emphasis for me to go to college and try to, you know, get, uh, get my degree. And yeah, I mean, the athletic development will, you know, take its place when it does. And yeah, I was just blessed with the opportunity to, uh, commit to the university of Florida in 2017 and, you know, after I made that commitment, I was very eager to get on campus and kind of solidify myself, you know, as an athlete in order to prepare for, you know, the draft after college because uh, you know, I just wasn't where I wanted to be in high school. And um, I definitely feel like the University of Florida and, you know, playing for the Florida Gators has definitely made me a better person and a better athlete all around. Why was Florida the right place for you? What was it that stood out to you about the program and about what, what Sully had to offer? Definitely the the winning mentality. You know, the the track record here is tremendous. Um, you know, we've been to the SEC or we've won the SEC championship in the regular season, uh, you know, a lot. We've been to Omaha, I think, about seven times in, you know, the history under, under Sully. So it's definitely, definitely the track record here. You know, they have a, a winning mentality and they kind of develop you to have that winning mindset. And, you know, you, you kind of um, – you kind of become more resilient as an athlete, you know, um, you're playing in the SEC, which, you know, that was kind of one of the main things, you know, once I uh, had the opportunity to come into the SEC and play for a school like this, um, you know, it was kind of a no brainer because in my opinion, the SEC is the best conference in college baseball. You know, you see a lot of good players, a lot of good teams, and, you know, a lot of guys that move on to that next level of professional baseball. So uh, wanting to compete in the SEC and, wear that Florida Gator uniform across my chest was, you know, the biggest thing for me. And it was, you know, three hours away from my hometown. So I knew it would be close to my family to come to every game. And they've definitely been, you know, a big support system in that and coming to all my games and making sure I've been good throughout my college career. So it was, it was very special. When you came into the program, who do you remember that really took you under their wing, showed you the ropes, who kind of broke you into college? Yeah, that's a great question. My freshman year, we had Kirby McMullen, who's been here for, you know, who, who had been here for a while. Jordan Butler, um, Jack Lefwich, Tommy Mace. Um, some of those guys, you know, definitely just took me under their wing, you know, on the field uh, in regards to how to approach, you know, big games and big time situations um, because they had already played a couple of years and they already had a couple of those years under their belt. So, um, I'd probably say the biggest one, at least my freshman year, was Tommy Mace, uh, just because, you know, he was going to be our ace. And um, when I played shortstop as a freshman, he was just always remind me that I am, you know, considered a leader on the field, no matter how old I am or what year of school I'm in. So that kind of always stuck with me as a freshman, you know, because having an older guy like that, you know, tell you, hey, you're a leader and you got to compose yourself as a leader of this team. Although, you know, I'd never really had that much of a track record of college baseball. Um, that was a big time uh, situation for me. Uh, you know, it was, it was big and definitely kind of just showed me the ropes of how, you know, this college game works. And uh, unfortunately, COVID, COVID came through and ended my freshman year. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, for the most part, I'd say, you know, Tommy Mace was a big, big factor, you know, me adjusting to the college game. So I want to fast forward a little bit to – after last season. So the 2022 draft comes, you talked about at a high school, 
you didn't really think you were in the right place, didn't didn't like where you were drafted, wanted to improve. And then the 2022 draft comes up and you don't get picked. So what is your mindset at that point? Because I imagine that's that's pretty low, right? But So where were you after that happened? And how did that change your approach and your mindset moving forward? All right. Well, at the end of the 2022 year, um, you know, I had I had a decent year, but I didn't play to, you know, the best of my ability, at least in my opinion. So going into the 2022 draft, you know, I kind of wasn't expecting anything. You know, I, I really I wanted to sign, but at the same time, you know, I was I was a redshirt sophomore due to COVID. So, you know, it wouldn't you know hurt me to go back to school. And especially get closer to getting my degree as I've, you know, wanted to do since high school. Mm-hmm. So once the draft came along, you know, I kind of just sat there and, uh, you know, just waited, waited out and tried to see what would happen. And, you know, like you said, I didn't get any calls. I didn't get picked. So once I kind of, you know, already had the mentality that I wasn't going to get picked or I wasn't going to sign, uh, made the decision a lot easier to just come back. We got some unfinished business here. And, you know, I definitely want to try to win a national championship ring and uh, get closer to my degree. So, um, yeah, you know, I was blessed with the opportunity to come back to Sully with open arms um, and be a real leader for this team. And obviously coming back has, has done wonders for you. You've had the best year of your career by far, one of the best years of anybody in the country. So what real changes did you make that have led to this incredible year that you've had? Uh, I kind of just didn't worry about any of the, the outside factors. You know, I kind of just had a tunnel vision. Uh, and that tunnel vision was just for me to work hard, you know, put in the work that nobody's watching and just trust in my abilities, you know, go out there and have fun. Especially, you know, if I plan on this being my last year, you know, I definitely want to have fun with my, my guys and the younger guys that, you know, I've never played college baseball. I kind of just want to show them the ropes on how, you know, things work here at the University of Florida. So um, I definitely just made it a point of emphasis to just go out there and have fun. Of course, this game could be stressful in certain situations and, you know, different games. But at the same time, I just wanted to go out there and have fun and trust the work that I've put in, you know, will come to light. So uh, I just put my head down and try to grind every day. You know, I took it day by day, not really focusing on, you know, the draft or not even the end of the semester for, you know, finishing school. Uh, I definitely just wanted to enjoy every day, uh, every second of every day, uh, really make the most out of this time that I have been blessed with. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that was the biggest change. You know, there would be times last year where I'd kind of look ahead and, you know, would kind of doubt my abilities and, you know, certain situations. But um, like you said, I didn't play any, you know, summer ball or anything. And in that time, uh, I kind of just grew – more love for you know the game itself um you know because i i would always think about my abilities and what i can and can't do but instead i just you know came back and wanted to focus on uh making the best out of every moment i can and um yeah put in the work i know that, that Sully's talked about your your mental approach to even to, to individual at bats and your preparation what what has that change been like? I mean, have you looked at scouting reports in a different way? Have you spent more time uh, on the front end? I mean, what what have you tangibly done that that's made such a big impact? I do look at scouting reports. You know, I look at what pitchers' tendencies and stuff is, but um, I would take it into account way too much in the past, and I would you know overthink it. Uh, so 
this time this time around I would see you know the the reports and stuff like that but I would you know still go in there with an, an open mind and you know for me I go in there and I kind of treat it like when I was a kid again playing travel ball uh, so you know the, the scouting reports are very helpful but at the same time it's all about competing so I kind of just focused on more of being a competitor instead of trying to play you know the guessing game of what's going to happen or what this pitcher is going to pitch or, you know, what he's going to do in a big-time situation. I would kind of just more so dig in the box and just focus on competing and, mm-hmm. you know, really getting my swing off at any pitch that I can drive or I can get a job done with. So it was more so just being more of a competitor instead of, you know, trying to match make, uh, you know, what things are going to happen and stuff like that. So um- – who are some major leaguers that you look up to? I mean, it could even be guys you played with who are now in the majors. I know there's a few of those. Um, but which guys stand out over the course of your life when you think about players who have inspired you, motivated you, etc.? I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, like Javier Baez and guys like that, like Francisco Lindor. You know, there's a, there's a ton of players, but I think my favorite one to watch growing up was Jose Reyes because, you know, just watching the energy he would play with, you know, every time he had a big-time triple or make a big-time play, you know, he just brought so much energy to the field and stuff like that. So I think Jose Reyes was probably my biggest inspiration because I would always watch the TV and, you know, I'd be like, I want to be like that guy. Mm-hmm. Just from, you know, an energetic standpoint, everything he'd do, you know, he did it with so much fire. Yeah, he looked like he was always having fun out there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Jose Reyes has probably been my biggest inspiration to – you know, make it to the major league level because I'd always, I always watch him, uh, especially when uh, the Yankees and Mets would play because you know my family always mm-hmm. tuned into the Subway Series. But um, there's guys you know that I've played with, for example, like Riley Green, who's outfitter for the Tigers right now. He was committed to you know the University of Florida, and you know I've been playing against Riley since we were 13 years old. So it's it's really special to you know, see him up there in the big leagues doing his thing. And, you know, there's another guy, Vaughn Grissom, for the Braves. Yep. Uh, everybody, when we were growing up, we kind of had the same haircut. And everybody, <laughs> everybody would always call us twins and makes his name with my name and vice versa. So, you know, it's really cool to see, you know, guys that I've played with getting their opportunities at the major league level and definitely making the most out of them. So those, you know, things like that inspire me to, you know, keep my head down and keep playing because, you know, it's all in God's timing. Everything that's meant for you will happen, but, you know, you, you can't get it all at your uh, your pace. You know, you got to kind of just wait for your opportunities to come and then make the most out of them. So We've talked a lot about things on the field. I want to move it off there now as we, uh, as we wind things down. When you're away from the game, when you're not practicing, when you're not studying, what are some things that, that you enjoy doing? I like hanging out with, you know, family members and, you know, close friends. Uh, I play a lot of a lot of competitive video games with them. You know, I've played Call of Duty a lot. Uh, we'll sit down and play 2K, uh, UFC, MLB The Show, like all that, you know, fun stuff within video games. But also just like to relax by myself and listen to music. And then whenever I get the opportunity, you know, I enjoy going to Disney a lot. Hmm. <laughs> uh, go to Disney with my girlfriend and uh, her family and stuff like that. And um, it's, very, it's a very fun time, especially when, I can even go to an arcade with them because, you know, every time we go to an arcade, they like to make it competitive and, you know, I end up competing off the field. So <laughs> there's, always, there's always something to, you know, be competing in or 
something to enjoy. So I just try to, you know, live life and enjoy every moment of it off the field. Favorite Disney rides? Top three. Top three. Oh, I think I like, is it Aerosmith? The Rock and Roller Coaster, yeah. Yeah, the Rock and Roller Coaster. That's probably my favorite out of all of them. And then Space Mountain is the second one for sure. And my third one, I think it's Everest out of Animal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You're hitting all the, there aren't a ton of thrill rides at Disney, but you've got them all. Your top three is stacked with the uh, the ultimate thrill rides. A hundred percent, yeah. Um, yeah, I know something else that you do is uh, is give back to the community. And last year you were on the SEC's community service team. I'm curious, what causes are you most passionate about and, and what does it mean to you to be able to give back? Um, one of the most important causes that I'm you know really interested in is uh, food insecurity. Um, just because I know in low income in area, or in low income areas, it could be tough for people to get the right right foods that they need to develop their best way. So you know the the only things that they have available to them is like fast food restaurants and stuff like that. And um, you know they, that can cause you know obesity uh, within people if they're not you know truly working out as much, um, or if they have the opportunity to work out as much. So I mean. Mm-hmm. Food insecurity is definitely important to me because, you know, there's there's a lot of people that aren't able to have resources. Like, they kind of have to just live paycheck by paycheck instead of being able to eat all the healthy and nutritious foods that they can. So I took some time to, you know, go to local food banks here and um, definitely just meet with them and see what their goals were. And um, they gave me the opportunity to help them out within the store. So it was very special, uh, especially to see, you know, all types of, things that they do for low income families and, you know, especially children in elementary schools that, you know, aren't eating enough uh, good food at home. Uh, So it is very special to, you know, be involved in the community and uh, try to make a difference for, you know, low income families and others that, you know, don't really have the same opportunities as, you know, other people. So Mm -hmm. that's cool. Final question for you. Uh, as we sit here today, you guys are getting ready for regionals and you're the number two national seed with that. A lot of expectations and a lot of people just look at that and they say, oh, they're, they're going to Omaha. But there's a lot of work that has to happen before that. I'm curious, from your standpoint, what are the keys to making that run and getting back to the World Series and, and where the program always wants to be? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is just taking it day by day. Uh, we can't overlook any team because it's the postseason and anybody can beat anybody. Uh, you know, all it takes is um, two bad games and your season is already over. So um, we kind of just got to take it day by day and not overlook, you know, any team we play, regardless of their record, regardless of their the conference that they're in, and regardless of, you know, the the talent differences on both sides. Um, we kind of got to go in there with the mindset to attack uh, and play our game of baseball because, you know, if we play our game of baseball uh, – And, you know, something else happens other than a win. Like, you know, if we lose or fall behind, you know, then we just got to recover from that and stay together as a team. But, uh, you know, I'm pretty confident in our abilities to play elite baseball when we're all doing our thing as a team. So, yeah, uh, we definitely can't overlook anybody, no matter what conference they're from or what their record is. But we just got to go out there and play our game. Well, Josh, we wish you a lot of luck as you move into the postseason. Congratulations on the incredible year that you've had. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity for sure.
And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.